0: Good morning everybody. So today we're going to finish Daniel chapter 7, God willing. And just a bit of revision, it's Daniel's vision of the four beasts, or four kingdoms. So just as a reminder, the first six chapters of Daniel are like his autobiography, and they tell his story from the start to the finish of his life. And the final six chapters are prophecy and they do with future events. Now, at the time, they were all future. In Daniel's day, they were all future. But here, uh, from our perspective, a lot of it has already come to pass. So why is this chapter so important? Well, chapter 7 is one of the great prophecies of the Bible, and the key to the entire program of God from Babylon to the second coming of Christ, because it talks about God setting up his kingdom. And so when we understand this, the chapter forms a major outline or big picture of future events to which we can add additional details which are given later in the book of Daniel and in the New Testament like in Matthew and Revelation. And that makes everything kind of fit together in an understandable way, and a logical way. So I just want to acknowledge that there are other interpretations of Daniel and Revelation and prophecy overall. There are people who love God who don't believe what I believe and wouldn't teach what I'm teaching. And there's people who love God who do believe what I believe and he would teach what I'm teaching. So, if you have a different viewpoint, I encourage you to learn what you can because we're all learning and growing, and Proverbs 27:17 says, "As iron sharpens iron, so a friend sharpens a friend." Now, talking about these things shouldn't because Conflict, it should cause us to grow in an understanding of the scriptures. So as I'm studying to deliver this message, I'm also learning about the other viewpoints as I go along. I'm making the choice to not dwell on them or take the time to explain the others because I think it would most likely cause confusion. It's a big enough subject as it is, so I'll just do my best to explain one viewpoint and you can look at the others separately. One of the things I'm going through is a book by John F. Valvewood, W-A-L-V-O-O-R-D, and it's called Daniel, The Key to Prophetic Revelation. And he does a good job of getting the main points from the main proponents of the other views, quoting them, and then discussing them, and also comparing them to Scripture. And it's very helpful, it's easy to read and understand, and it's not too long. So, Let's pray for today. Lord, I pray that you'll help us to grow in our understanding of your scriptures. And more than that, that we would be able to apply this to ourselves. And Lord, it would change us to have an urgency to share the gospel with those around us because we know that judgment is coming. Sometimes that judgment is coming quicker than we think. As People die every day. Tens of thousands of people die every day in this world. And their judgment has come. So I just pray that we can get the message out that judgment is coming. It could come any day for some people, for any of us actually. And we need to be ready. We need a saviour to save us from the penalty and power of sin. And Jesus is the only saviour. He's the only perfect man. He is God become man to die on the cross for our sins, and rise again on the third day, just like the Scriptures said. So we just pray that you'll give us understanding, our Father, teach us by your Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. So, I'm just going to read the whole of chapter 7. We went through the first part last week, but the second part explains the first part. It's an interpretation, so we should read the vision again. So, verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, this is Daniel chapter 7, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head while on his bed. Then he wrote down the dream, telling the main facts. Daniel spoke, saying, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I watched till its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man, and a man's heart was given to it. And suddenly another beast, a second, like a bear, it was raised up on one side and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And they said thus to it, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and there was another, like a leopard, who had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one, coming up among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots, and there In this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking pompous words. I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousand ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. I watched them because of the sound of the pompous word which the horn was speaking. I watched till the beast was slain and its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As for the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. So that's what we went through last week, and we explained as best we could most of that. Now we can go on to the second half of the chapter, verse 15. I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit within my body, and the visions of my head troubled me. I came near to one of those who stood by and asked him the truth of all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. Those great beasts which are four are four kings which arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom for ever, even for ever and ever. Then I wished to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful, with its teeth of iron, and its nails of bronze, which devoured broken pieces, and trampled their residue with its feet. And the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn which came up, before which three fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth, which spake pompous words, whose appearance was greater than his fellows. I was watching, and the same horn was making war against the saints and prevailing against them, until the Ancient of Days came, and a judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High, and the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. Thus he said, The fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all other kingdoms, and shall devour the whole earth, trample it, and break it in pieces. The ten horns are ten kings who shall arise from this kingdom and another shall arise after them another king he shall be different from the first ones and shall subdue three kings he shall speak pompous words against the most high shall persecute the saints of the most high and shall intend to change times and law then the saints shall be given into his hand for a time and times and half a time But the court shall be seated, and they shall take away his dominion to consume and destroy it for ever. Then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. This is the end of the account as for me, Daniel. My thoughts greatly troubled me and my countenance changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. So last week we saw pretty clearly that verses 9 and 10 point to judgment. It's clear that both the world system, the Antichrist, and unbelievers individually will eventually face judgment. God is allowing evil to dominate currently and will do so even more in the tribulation period, especially the last half. But one day... Human government will end. And I would say to that, hallelujah, praise God. No more immorality, brutality, corruption, greed, violence, destruction, etc. Jesus will rule supreme and rule the nations with a rod of iron. The lion will lay down with the lamb in a rejuvenated or restored creation, a restored earth. The new heavens and the new earth will come at the end of the thousand-year millennial period. So this week we're going to focus on the angelic interpretation of Daniel's vision. So verse 15, I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit within my body. So first off, this shows that our spirit dwells within the body. It is true that the spirit is more important than the body because 1 Timothy 4, eight says, Bodily exercise profits a little, but we should pursue godliness. But it is true that if our spirit is suffering or weak or grieved, then it affects our body and vice versa. Our body can affect our spirit. We know that our emotions, our mind can also affect our body and spirit. And that's what's happening here with Daniel what he's experienced and what's going on in his spirit is affecting his body. Now, this whole idea, the the phraseology here is if you think about a sword in its sheath or scabbard. Okay? So, you can take the sword out of its sheath and you can, you know, use it and then you can put it back into its sheath or scabbard. So, Basically, what it's saying is the human spirit is different from the body. It can exist apart from or independently of the body. And the body is like the sheath. It's only there for a certain time. So just like the sword can exist independently of the sheath, you can lose the sheath and you can still keep the sword. Well, one day we're going to lose this body and we're going to keep our spirit and we're going to get a new body for that spirit to be in. Now, it says, And the visions of my head troubled me. I came near to one of those who stood by, that's an angel, and asked him the truth of all this. Now, Daniel was distressed. That's what this means. Daniel was distressed by what he saw. Now, put yourself in Daniel's shoes. I think that if you and I were given the privilege of seeing the future, all the wars and the suffering and the persecution of the saints, all the evil that will happen, without really understanding what was going on, I think we would be distressed as well. So he told me, in verse 16, and made known to me the interpretation of these things. Those great beasts which are four are four kings which arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. So the angel gets to the bottom of it pretty quick. The four kings, represent the four kingdoms, arise out of the earth, out of the nations. But the final result is God wins. The saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. So this again goes back to chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar's dream, where there's this huge image of a man with a head of gold, chest of silver, belly of brass, and legs of iron. Man's perspective of world history and the government's that would come with stately, valuable, and impressive. I mean, they have big armies and buildings and ships and all that kind of stuff. But in chapter 7, we see God's perspective of these empires. They're not silver, gold, brass, and iron, but they're beasts. Why? Because they are evil, corrupt, violent, greedy, immoral, wicked, depraved, and you can keep going. The nations are like that. You just look around and they're seeking to control, they're seeking to use people. They don't care about people, there's no love there. Then it says, the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom. So when the day of the fourth beast is over, when his time is done, that that kingdom is finished, then God's people receive the kingdom. Now, here is a sticking point, and here's what makes the understanding this a little bit difficult. We know that the Roman Empire is long gone. But it doesn't seem that the saints have received the kingdom. Jesus is not ruling and reigning on the earth, as far as we can see. Now, this is what causes many people to look for either a spiritualized or allegorical interpretation fulfilled in history already. Or, it can cause people to look and find some kind of future restoration of the Roman Empire that will happen in the last days. One that will literally fulfill the prophecy of the Ten Horns or the Ten Kings and the Little Horn, the Antichrist, as well. So there are your two options there. And shall receive the kingdom. The saints receive the kingdom. God gives them the kingdom at when? The return of Jesus. They do not gain dominion over all these earthly kingdoms before the return of Jesus. The church is not going to win the world for Jesus and make everything hunky-dory or just right so Jesus can then come back. Consider what the scriptures say the world will be like in the days before Jesus comes back. Let's go to 2 Timothy 3, 1-5. It says, But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come, For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. Wow, just read the news. (laughs) What's going on around the world right now? Just that, it's terrible. Also consider looking inwards here into the church. Luke 18.8 Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? So Jesus is saying here that in the last days, there will be very few faithful, fervent Christians. And in another place, because of sin, the love of many will grow cold. Now verse 19 in Daniel 7 Then I wish to know the truth about the fourth beast which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful with its teeth of iron, and its nails of bronze, which devoured broken pieces and trampled the residue with his feet. Then we went through last week about the Roman Empire, how they crushed people, how they were different. And in verse 20, the ten horns which were on its head, and the other horn which came up, before which three fell, namely the horn which had eyes, and a mouth which spoke pompous words, whose appearance was greater than his fellows. I was watching... And the same horn was making war against the saints and prevailing against them until the Ancient of Days came, and a judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High. And the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. So this little horn, which we believe is the Antichrist, is making war against the saints. Now, my position is that the church has been raptured prior to the start of the tribulation period. Pre-tribulation view, and the saints here would be the tribulation saints. So, I'm going to try and show two things as we read through some verses in Revelation. One, what kind of suffering the Antichrist will cause, and two, who are these saints? So, we're going to again assume that the church has gone, has been raptured, taken to heaven before the seven-year tribulation period starts. Daniel seventieth week. And those left behind have the opportunity to believe, to put their trust in God because of the witness of the nation of Israel. Now, you might have heard of the two witnesses and the 144,000 evangelists, 12,000 from each tribe, and we're going to learn more about that later. But for now, we just focus on who the saints are and the suffering they will go through. So I'm going to read a series of verses from Revelation that should help us to understand who these guys are, these saints are. So we're going to start in Revelation 6, 9-11. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little longer, unto both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. So these are people who are being killed. And there's more information in Revelation 7, 13 to 17. Then one of the elders, and we'll get into this when we go into Revelation, but the elders I believe represent the church in heaven, the raptured church, the church caught up. The true church caught up into heaven. So then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes, and where did they come from? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Notice that he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them, and they shall neither hunger any more nor thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat. For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Now, there's more spoken about these tribulation saints in chapter 12, verse 11. It's on the screen. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. And now, verse 17, chapter 12 of Revelation. And the dragon, or Satan, was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So, why would they be killed? Well, according to Revelation thirteen fifteen to 17 the false prophet is given great power. The dragon, Satan, is enraged with the nation of Israel, that's a woman, and he wants to make war with her offspring, which is the tribulation saints, the people who believe from the Gentile nations. And Revelation 13, 15 to 17 gives us some detail about how this is going to happen. So it says, He was granted power. Now the false prophet is the sidekick to the Antichrist. They work together. He was granted power, the, the false prophet, to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast, the image of the Antichrist, should both speak, and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. So this is why it's very dangerous to be a saint or tribulation believer in the time of the tribulation because there's going to come a time where, verse 16, he causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads, and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast, or the number of his name. So if you don't take that mark, if you don't worship, you will be killed. Now, is God going to let people go through this without warning them? No, because Revelation 14, 9-13, the story continues. It says, Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image, and receives his mark on his forehead, or on his hand, He himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, who worship the beast and his image, and whoever receives the mark of his name. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, "Write, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. Notice, in the Lord, from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works. Follow them. So, what's it saying? Well, halfway through the tribulation, the Antichrist, otherwise known as a beast or little horn, breaks his treaty with Israel sets up an image of himself in the temple and his sidekick, the false prophet who has given the power to do amazing miracles, demands that the people worship the Antichrist as God. But angels will be flying around warning people that if they take the mark of the beast they will seal their fate. There will be no more chances for them. If you take the mark, you will go to hell when you die. It's that simple. That's why so many will be martyred during this time people will be forced to make a clear-cut choice. Accept the mark of the beast and live for up to three and a half years more, suffering through plague after plague, knowing that you will go to hell for eternity, or be willing to die for your faith and be in the presence of Jesus, who will comfort them forever. Listen again to Revelation 14, 13-14. Then I heard a voice saying to me, Right blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, there's a spirit that they might rest from their labors and their works follow them. So in that time, in that future time, in the great tribulation, also known as Jacob's trouble, it's better to be dead because the Antichrist is going to be so nasty. He's going to really persecute the saints and just slaughter them. Right, let's go back to Daniel 7, verse 23. Thus he said, The fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which shall be different from all other kingdoms, and shall devour the whole earth, trample it, and break it in pieces. The ten horns are ten kings, who shall arise from this kingdom, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the first ones, and shall subdue three kings. So the fourth kingdom, or the Roman Empire, is the one from which the little horn, or Antichrist, will arise. And... Here again, the meaning of the vision is made clear. The four beasts, the four kingdoms, just like the statue in chapter 2 represented four kingdoms. And verse 25, he shall speak pompous words against the Most High. So these are blasphemous words. So the Antichrist is going to be this really, really good orator, you know, a really great speaker. He's going to capture the imagination of the entire world, but he's going to be evil. And 25, shall persecute the saints. Of the Most High. Now, we just talked about that persecution, what's going to happen. But the language here speaks of a cruel and systematic pressure coming from the word to wear away or to wear out, like friction wears out clothes or shoes. This persecution will be intense. A couple of people have commented on this. They said, To wear out the saints means to harass them continually so that life becomes a wretched existence. Another person says, Such continual and protracted pressure far more effectively breaks the human spirit than the single moment of crisis that calls for a heroic decision. It is easier to die for the Lord than to live for him under constant harassment and strain. So, who are these saints that he's going to overcome? Well, we've already seen that they are the tribulation saints, those living in the time of the seven-year tribulation period, who chose to believe in Jesus and accept his gift of salvation with forgiveness of their sins. Now, Verse 25, and shall intend to change times and law. This is interesting. I'm not quite sure what this means, but it could refer to the fact that Antichrist, or Satan, who's possessing him, thinks that he can beat the rap and be victorious in the end, despite this prophecy saying he won't. Then the saints shall be given into his hand for time and times and a half a time. So the Antichrist will be successful, but only for three and a half years. Now, why isn't this the church? Well, what does God say in Matthew sixteen eighteen? He says, And upon this rock I will build my church, and the powers of hell will not conquer it. What did he say here? And the saints shall be given into his hand. They will be conquered. Yes, the church will be persecuted, but in the church age, persecution actually produces growth. Consider China and Iran, for example. Satan is powerless to stop the growth of the church. However, things will be different in the tribulation period because of the choice that the Antichrist gives people to swear allegiance to Antichrist and bow down to his image or die. So it appears that there will be very few believers or tribulation saints alive at the end of the tribulation period. And the exception is the believing Jews who will be miraculously protected at Petra or Bosra who will become the nation of Israel, ruled by Jesus himself for a thousand years. Now, it says for a time and times and half a time. So this is a time, one year, and times, two years and half a time, so that makes three and a half years. So this three and a half year period is also mentioned in Revelation 11, 2-3 and 13 verse 5, where it refers to half of the seven-year period of man's rule on this earth. This is also the 70th week of Daniel, which we'll learn about later. So in Revelation 12, 13 and 14, we see that Satan is kicked out of heaven halfway through the tribulation. And it says, Now when the dragon, that Satan, saw that he'd been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. That's Jesus. But the woman, Israel, was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent, or Satan. So the woman again is Israel. she's is protected for three and a half years at Petra or Bozrah, according to Old Testament scriptures. We'll get into that more in Revelation. For now, focusing on what is a time times half a time. So, as I said, a time speaks of one year. Time speaks of two years and a half a year. So this is three and a half years. So at the midpoint of the seven-year tribulation period, Antichrist will suddenly wage war against the Jews. He'll betray them. When he first comes on the scene, he'll win the approval of the entire world. He'll be like a so-called peacemaker. But after three and a half years, he'll show his true colors when he erects an image of himself in the temple and demands to be worshipped as God. God, however, will protect Israel by taking her to a safe place in the wilderness. As I said, most likely the rock city of Petra, referred to in the Old Testament as Bosra. And you can look at Isaiah 34, 6 and 63, 1. Now, what are other scriptures that confirm that this is a three and a half year period of time? Well, let's look at Revelation 11, verse 2 to 3 and 7. It says, And they will tread the holy city underfoot for forty-two months. And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. So, 42 months, what's that? That's 12 months in a year, It's three and a half years. And the two witnesses, we'll get into that when we get to Revelation, but how long will they prophesy? 1,260 days. Now, in the scriptures, a year is 360 days. That's how they counted a year back then. So, one thousand two hundred and sixty days you do your mass is three and a half years. So everything is going to these three and a half year periods. So in this case it's referring to the witnesses ministering or witnessing for the first three and a half years, and then the Antichrist kills them. Let's read uh, Revelation thirteen one to seven. And it says, Then I stood on the sand of the sea. That's the nations. And I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon or Satan gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed. And all the world marveled and followed the beast or Antichrist. So they worshipped the dragon, Satan, who gave authority to the beast, the Antichrist. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And he was given a mouth, speaking great things and blasphemies. Remember the little horn, speaking pompous words. And he was given authority to continue for forty-two months. That is, three and a half years. Then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God, to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. It was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them, and authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. So this time, the 42 months refers to the second half of the seven-year tribulation period, also known as Jacob's trouble or the great tribulation. Now verse 26. But the court shall be seated, and they shall take away his dominion, that's the dominion of the Antichrist, to consume and destroy it forever. Then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him, and that is Jesus. So this world leader, this little horn, this big time power we know as the Antichrist is going down. All dominions will serve Jesus. Now, here's something interesting. The United Nations building in New York, I'm not sure if it's still there now, but it was back then. It's got these words. It's from Isaiah chapter 2, verse 4, and it says, They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. And that's the, like the motto of the United Nations. They want peace, world peace. But I'm going to put that verse up on the screen. It's Isaiah chapter 2, verse 4, and have a look at what they missed out. It's interesting. It says, He shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. So what happens first? Jesus comes and he judges the nations and he rebukes them. Only after that they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. And there's no more war. So mankind thinks that they can win peace. They can make this world a good place. But the Bible says man's attempts at government are beastly at best. So what does a beast do? Well, look around at the nations today and compare it to a lion or a bear. They anger easily. They guard their territory ferociously. They shed blood callously. Now, you never see a group of bears marching to save the rabbits. <laughs> what beasts want, they go after. They take whatever they can get and they expand their territory whenever possible and that's why God sees these empires as beasts. It's a person, not a program, that will bring peace, and that person is Jesus. Man does not have the ability to rule himself. He's sinful and corrupt to the core. That's our sinful nature. But the Ancient of Days, the Father is coming, and a kingdom that is right and beautiful, true and equitable, will follow. Now, I just want to touch on those different views. Now, There's three different options in interpreting God's kingdom being established on the earth. The first one is there is no fulfillment, that Daniel's just making a mistake, so the scriptures are false. The second is you can spiritualize it and make it a symbolic thing that happened in church history. Or you can say that this fulfillment is literal and therefore future. So there are your three choices. Then the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. So, based on this verse and this section of scripture, it is my view that this must describe the millennial earth and not our current age or heaven. Why? Well, the kingdom and dominion of the earth certainly does not belong to the righteous or the believers now. And now, if this describes the eternal state, then what are the dominions that shall serve and obey him. So the only one for me that makes sense is that it must describe the millennial earth, the thousand-year rule and reign of Christ. Now, to continue this thought, we can compare Daniel chapter 2, verses 44 and 45, which says, And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And we've read that before. The Kingdom shall not be left to other people; it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever okay it's a mountain made without hands, and it goes over the whole earth now in daniel two forty four to forty five the ten toes are identified as ten kings in daniel seven twenty four the ten horns are identified as ten kings, so they're parallel accounts and the important thing is that in the days of these ten kings, God sets up his kingdom, his physical Kingdom on earth, chapter 2, verse 44. That means in the lifetime of those kings. So, my logic is this it's quite simple. Since Jesus has not returned yet, those 10 leaders or rulers or kings haven't been revealed yet. Hope that makes sense. So, last week we read other prophecies from different parts of the Bible which describe Jesus' victorious and complete rule and reign over the earth, not in heaven but on earth. And in addition to those, Jesus said in Matthew 24, starting at verse 27, For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Basically, everyone's going to see. Everyone will see when Jesus comes. It's not going to be done. So it's just a spiritual thing. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, again matching the tribulation, The sun will be dark and the moon will not give us light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven and then all the tribes of earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man, that is Jesus, coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory and he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. So over all the earth he will gather the believers. So verse 27 in Matthew 24 makes it clear that everyone will see the second coming. And verses 29 to 31 make it clear that when he comes back, it'll be with power and much glory, and that he will gather together his elect. Now, I think it's pretty obvious that this has not happened yet. This is the start of Jesus setting up his kingdom. This is a parallel account to the rock made without hands in Daniel 2, smashing the statue and covering the whole earth and also the Son of Man in Daniel 7, 13-14, coming in glory and given a kingdom that will rule all people with us at his side, as Daniel 7:18 says. So as I said last week, Psalm 2 says that Jesus will rule with a rod of iron and there will be no more human government. Jesus will rule the whole world, initially for a thousand years on a regenerated earth and then forever on the new heavens and the new earth. And verse 28, This is the end of the account. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly troubled me and my countenance changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. So, when he saw world history from God's perspective, Daniel was troubled. Now, I think that when we look at this history, we should be troubled too. Not for ourselves, but for the world. Because judgment is coming. So, application. Daniel took this to heart. How should this affect us today? How should we take this to heart? Yes, I believe that we're going to not be here. We're going to be taken away. But what about those people who don't know Jesus now? We've learned about the four main empires predicted, and they've come and they've gone, but there are still the ten kings and the Antichrist to come, and we're assuming they're a future. So remember, the whole point of this is that whatever viewpoint you hold, all believe that God is coming back, and when he does, he will judge the world. So why is God judging the world? Because of sin. Okay, sin is the problem. God is perfect, and so must judge sin. He is good, and therefore he must judge sin. The problem is that we are sinners, and therefore we will be judged by God because we have broken his law, the same commandments. Now, what is the gospel? Well, the gospel is defined in 1 Corinthians fifteen one to 4 It says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, and then verse 3, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. So, the gospel is that Christ died for our sins. It's so simple. Jesus is the only solution to our terminal condition. He is the only sinless man and he is also God. Therefore, he is the only one who can pay the penalty for our sins. Not just our sins, but the sins of the whole world. Jesus said in John 14:6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So, the way, the only way, the truth, the only truth, and the life, the only life. No one can come to the Father except through me. So, how should this be affecting how we behave what we do? Second Corinthians 5.20.21 says, So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, Come back to God. For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin, so that we could be made right with God through Christ. That's what it's all about. Jesus taking our place, becoming sin for us, so that we can be made right with God, back into that perfect relationship with him. And Jesus says it well in John 8.24. He says, Therefore, talking to the religious leaders, Therefore I said To you that you will die in your sins, for if you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins. So, if you don't accept that Jesus is both God and man, he came to earth, born as a human, grew up, died on the cross as the payment for our sins, the only way our sins can be forgiven, then you will spend eternity separated from God, tormented in the lake of fire, which is the second death. Now, Paul said in Romans one six, for I am not ashamed of this good news about Christ. It is the power of God at work, saving everyone who believes. Unfortunately, I think some people are somewhat ashamed of the gospel. They don't want to tell people that they're sinners. They're ashamed of that message. But Paul wasn't ashamed of it. We shouldn't be ashamed of it. Yes, we will sometimes offend people. They don't like to hear that they're sinners. They don't like to hear that they're going to hell. But we need to tell them gently, in a loving way. And when we do, i found that most people are very grateful. So in there it says, It is the power of God at work, saving everyone who believes. The gospel is the power of God at work, saving everyone who believes. Now, to save means to rescue from danger. So you're drowning and someone plucks you out of the ocean before the shark eats you or something like that. Rescue from mortal danger. And to believe means to trust in and commit to. Like you put on a parachute before you jump out of a plane. You know, it's possible to believe in the parachute, that the parachute will save you if you put it on. But if you jump without putting on the parachute, then that knowledge will not help you. That understanding will not help. You need to put the parachute on. And that's what it means to believe in Jesus. You need to put Jesus on. Be totally committed and dependent on him. Now it's not an easy message, but we need to be true to our calling, faithful to tell others about the most important choice that they must make, the choice of where they will spend eternity, heaven or hell. Now I want to finish reading you a letter from a pastor. I got this from the Evidence Bible. And its title is A Dream of Judgment Day. So, this passage refers to the great and terrible day of the Lord. And we've got some references there. This should ever be in the mind, this is Ray Comfort speaking right now. This should ever be in the mind of the Christian. This is why we preach Christ. Not to improve the lifestyle of the unsaved. Not to change their lives. We preach Christ so that sinners may be saved from the wrath that is to come. May the following letter written by pastor stir your heart to do all you can to lead sinners to genuine conversion. So, here's the letter. Dear Brother Ray, I have been a pastor for 25 years. I always thought I was doing a reasonably good job, kind of like the folks who consider themselves good people. I had tried to preach. What I thought was the whole counsel of God. I prayed over the years with many people to accept Jesus and make him Lord of their lives. My wife Judy and I moved to Ruidoso, New Mexico, about six years ago to plant a church. Shortly after arriving, I was convicted that something was horribly wrong with my ministry. I read the scriptures and prayed earnestly that God would show me what was wrong. The feeling continued to grow and I became depressed and moody. I asked Judy to pray for me and explain my problem. I still didn't know if this was the Holy Spirit convicting or Satan attacking. She prayed that God would reveal the cause of my depression and make himself clear as he revealed any problem with my ministry for him. That night I had the most terrifying, realistic, blood-chilling nightmare any man has ever had. I am a Vietnam veteran and I know a little about nightmares. Nothing in my experience has ever come close, nor do I ever want it to, to the horror of that night. I dreamed that it was Judgment Day and I was standing right next to the throne of God. I noticed that to my left and to my right were pastors, as far as I could see. I thought this was odd that the Lord would reserve this front row space for pastors only. I looked out across a space of only a few yards and there were millions, maybe billions, of people. Yet I could see each one of their eyes staring at me. And as I studied this group, I noticed that I knew many of them from the times at the altar or ones who had sat under my teaching. I was pleased to see that they had made it to heaven, but confused because they didn't look happy. They looked very angry and hateful. Then I heard the voice of the Lord say, Away, I never knew you. I was suddenly frightened that what I was seeing were those who thought they were saved. Then I saw all of them pointing a finger at each of us pastors and saying together in one voice that shook my soul, We sat in your church and we thought we were saved. Why didn't you tell us we were lost? Tears were pouring down my face and the faces of all those pastors. I watched as one by one those people were cast into hell. One and then another and another and another until they were all gone. I died inside as each one screamed in agony and gnashed their teeth, cursing as they went into the lake of fire. Then I was looking into the face of Jesus and he said to me, Is this the part where I'm supposed to say, Well done, my good and faithful servant? I woke up with a scream and my heart pounding and I was begging Jesus to forgive me. I died a million deaths that night. Since that night I have done two things on a daily basis. I do everything I can to preach the law before grace in the hope that conviction of sin will bring a sinner to true salvation the other thing i do is pray for every person i've ever preached to asking god to repair any damage i have done i also never believe anyone when they tell me that they are saved it is my duty to challenge them and search out the solidness of their salvation i am learning to be more effective and confident as i teach others how to share their faith by using the law I have seen several people saved who thought they were saved, as I have used the way of the Master material to teach them evangelism. I do want to hear those words, Well done, my good and faithful servant. And thanks to you and your team, I have a better chance of hearing them. Thank you. I just wanted to let you know, some pastors are waking up to the truth. The desire of my heart is to please God. I pray that my days of being a man-pleaser are over, along with the nightmares. I also pray that God will use me to bring other pastors into the truth of the gospel message so that they will not have to face the nightmare that I did. And signed, Pastor Steve. That was a pretty gut-wrenching story. But we need to make sure that when we get to heaven, we have done our best to tell those around us about the Lord. Father, I just pray, Lord, that you will convict us And like Daniel, as he was shown these visions, was really disturbed and distressed. Lord, help us to be disturbed and distressed about the fate of the lost. Lord, the destiny of these billions of people who don't know you, who are caught up in deceit and lies and false religion. A lot of people in the church who are not, say, the false converts, who have been told that just accept Jesus and he'll make your life better. And there's been no true repentance. There haven't been told that without repentance, there's no forgiveness. So there's no true belief. So I just pray, Lord, that you will work in us, change us, and give us that love for the lost, that love that causes us to not be scared, to not be ashamed of the gospel, but to be bold in presenting the gospel to all those around us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.